So we have been in a sermon series that seems like between you and me it has gone on just about forever. But the good news is we're going to finish it up and put the exclamation point on it this morning. We have been talking about how do we discover, how do we discern what God's will is really all about and how do we do that together? So we explored the personal spiritual disciplines that it's important for us to have our heart and our life right with God. So we need to involve ourselves in prayer and in scripture. We need to involve ourselves in some time of silence to listen to what God is saying to us. We also discovered that it's important for us to be able to come together to be the one church that God has invited us to be. Jesus prayed for in John 17 about being unified. And then we have talked about what actually is the process of discernment. Last week, we talked about why we go through all this. It is for the sake of others. And this morning, we're going to sort of, if you will, put the exclamation point on that. And then we will move on to something different beginning next week. So the passage I'd like you just to think with me about for a few moments this morning is taken from Hebrews. It's from the 10th chapter. It's the 24th and most of the 25th verse where the author writes, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day coming. 20 years ago, Tom Smith was on the fast track to ministry in South Africa. As a young man, he was being groomed to become the pastor of a mega church. But he was already burning out. Ministry had become a chore for him. And pastoring, it was just a job. Tom and his wife decided to get off the treadmill towards success and to focus on what it meant to really be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be a part of his community. So they sold everything that they had and they came to the United States to spend some time on sabbatical. During that time of slowing down, during that time of reflection, during that time of discernment, a new vision emerged. And after a time, they went back to South Africa they focused on letting God lead in new and risky ways. They planted Clay Pot Church. Tom tells the story. He says, it was November 2003. A few people had come together to pray. They were listening for God's direction and searching the scriptures for a biblical metaphor to describe the mission and the vision that they were hearing from God. And he says the Spirit took them to a passage in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, the seventh verse, which reads, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Tom says they searched for a clay pot to serve as a visual reminder. And they settled on this used, dirty pot with a few chips and cracks in it. At the end of one service, they put it in a bag and they dropped it on a concrete floor. It now symbolized their brokenness. Everyone took a piece home. Everyone was invited to write a passage of scripture on it or a word that they were hearing from God. 
And then the next week they brought it back, glued it back together. It remained for them a picture of their imperfections. Glued back together, it represented the healing that they were discovering together. Glued back together, they discovered that when they put a candle in the middle of it, the candle's life radiated through the cracks. Pastor Smith said those who were joining the community with him weren't interested in, in just going to church on Sunday or even building a huge mega church. They longed to be the church. They longed to be a community of faith. And so they embraced a new rule of life together, a new way of living, a new way of being the people of God, a new way of being on God's mission. So the members currently keep each other accountable for six basic invitations. First, they were to plug in daily with God through prayer, through scripture, or through another spiritual discipline. Second, they were to eat three meals a week with each other and with those who didn't know Jesus Christ. Third, they were to discover their piece of the puzzle. In that case, it meant their spiritual gift and to share it with others. Fourth, they were to walk each week in someone else's shoes. Fifth, they were to be committed to downward mobility and to develop a servant mentality. And sixth, they were to see their working lives, that is their job or their vocation, as an essential expression of their discipleship. Now, every January, the church pauses. Members don't come to worship. They take that time to discern their continuing membership and to reflect on whether God is calling them to continue again for the coming year to be a part of Claypot Church. If they return, they come back the last Sunday in January. They break a new pot. They take another piece. They go home, write another passage or a word from God on it, and then come back, and the pot is reassembled, a new commitment for that year. At Clay Pot Church, they underscore the importance of commitment and accountability and downward mobility and discernment and servanthood. Rare in our world, even among people that call themselves followers of Jesus. They are what people call a high commitment church, and they're growing. When most people today hear about rule of life, they write it off as too restrictive, too legalistic, and for sure too unrealistic. Discernment, service, and accountability only get in the way, they say, of being all that I can be or being able to do what I want to do. After all, the church is here to meet my needs, isn't it? To do what I want them to do, right? We live in a consumer culture. We are constantly being treated like consumers, and the truth is we are constantly behaving like consumers. So it seems only natural that we would assume that we deserve to have all of our needs met. We deserve to have it our way. We deserve to have the best. We deserve to have what everyone else has it, even if we're not willing to work quite as hard as they are to attain it. And we deserve to have it right now. 
It's the world's responsibility to make me feel comfortable. And increasingly, politicians are willing to promise just that. There's a word for this. It's called narcissism. It's the belief that life is primarily around me. It centers around me and around my needs and my wants and my opinions and my happiness. James Bryan Smith tells a story of a church that initiated a Bible reading program. Members of the congregation were invited, encouraged, requested to commit themselves to reading the Bible for between 10 and 15 minutes every single day. After a few weeks, a woman approached the pastor and said, I'm leaving this church because when I joined, Bible reading wasn't part of the contract. In a previous church that I served, we had planned to shorten the service on Sunday morning. We went from about 70 minutes down to 45 minutes. And the idea was is that at the end of the service, we would offer people an invitation to go out in groups into the community and walk up and down the street and pray for the houses in that community. That was the plan. And then we invited them all to come back together to the church. We had one of those potluck dinners and we invited people there to share their experiences of just being praying in their neighborhood for the last half hour or 45 minutes. And most people participated. But one, one man, as he was walking out the door past an elder, said, I'm leaving. I come to church to hear a good sermon, not to pray. Okay. Many churches focus primarily, some even exclusively, on caring for their own, their own members, on making sure their seats are filled, make sure the money is coming in to pay the bills. Sadly, even in the church world, we define success all too often by the numbers. Since members are increasingly hard to come by in this increasingly secular society, and especially now post-pandemic, some churches are doing whatever it takes to make sure that every member is happy and attending. The problem with that is churches have now lowered their expectations for members. They have de-emphasized Christ's call to discipleship. And as a result, and especially in North America, most Christians are very comfortable today, but very few are Christ-like. To become the community that God has called us to be, we need a new, a renewed, a biblical paradigm for the church. James Bryan Smith writes, quote, the church community exists to shape and to guide my soul. The community has the right to expect certain behavior from me and must provide the encouragement and the accountability that I need. In Acts 2, Luke describes for us the soul-shaping rule of life as it occurred in the early church, being fully devoted to the teaching of the disciples, being fully devoted to the fellowship, being fully devoted to the breaking of bread together, and being fully devoted to prayer. Together, the early church held each other accountable to those kinds of things. And the early church thrived. The author of Hebrews, this passage that we just read, reminds us that the, the primary, 
maybe the main or perhaps even the sole focus and responsibility of the church is to provide transformation for people into the image of God. This underscores Jesus' well-known mandate to his church of going and making disciples, of baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Discipling is the main thing. If the church is to be Christ's church, then it needs to do what Christ commands. The church must offer forgiveness to those who seek it, extend grace to those who are broken and dysfunctional, to love the unlovable, to keep following Jesus even when it seems almost impossible. But an all-encompassing acceptance That is, it's relatively easy for people to nod their head in agreement. An encompassing acceptance doesn't negate our personal responsibilities. The left hand can't say to the right hand, you know what? I'm going on vacation this week. It's all up to you. You're on your own. Good luck. Have fun. No, the whole body has to work together. The whole body is called to unity. The whole body has to work together or it soon will become dysfunctional. Today, all too often the church is reluctant to call sin, sin. It's hesitant to ask people to raise the bar in their prayer life. It's skittish about challenging people that they ought to be better disciples. And in fact, in many places, the church neglects to make disciples at all. Instead, churches are increasingly lowering the bar and hoping people will simply show up at worship on a Sunday morning, perhaps put something in the offering plate and stay out of trouble. And in a lot of churches, that's the definition of what it means to be a member in good standing. As we noted last week, the scriptures emphasize on soul shaping is designed to prepare us for and to propel us into God's mission. We worship and are blessed, we said by God. We are sent from worship to change his world. God's presence changes us, and then we are called into his world to change others. We are blessed and then sent. We're not supposed to build a church. We're supposed to be the church. We all long for a community that cares about us deeply. But we often hesitate when that same community challenges us to become the people we already claim to be that we are in Jesus Christ. We want a community that will love us. But we pause. We hesitate when that love involves responsibility, or accountability. In my first year as a Calvin University student, all of those who were in the pre-seminary track were asked to attend a meeting where Professor Dr. Lewis Voss was going to be talking to us. And I don't remember much of that meeting, but one of the things that he said has stuck with me my entire life, and that he says, my role, if I'm going to go into the pastorate, is very simple. He says, you are to comfort the afflicted, and you are to afflict 
the comfortable. Okay. But how can the church, on the one hand, be comforting and on the other hand, be challenging at the same time? How can we, on the one hand, be pastoral and gracious and on the other hand, be prophetic and demand truth? How can we embrace everyone and at the same time set the bar high? I think there are at least four things that we ought to consider. First, we need to know who and whose we are. Who and whose we are. We need to remind each other of that regularly. So when we come together on a Sunday morning, one of the very first things we do, and we did it again here this Sunday morning, is we say, God loves us. God welcomes us. God gathers us together. God offers us his grace and his mercy and his peace. And then to understand that God's meta-narrative becomes our personal narrative. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. He came to reconcile me. He came to restore me. God made me alive. God destines me for eternal joy. I belong to him. And then we are reminded whose we are. God's meta-narrative becomes Georgetown's narrative. When we're together, we are reminded of our common story. We are reminded of our journey of being transformed together in Christ as his children. We are reminded who we are in him. We are the body of Christ. Scripture reminds us that we are a sanctified community. We are a people set apart from the world and its community. We are an ecclesia. We are a called out people. We are a holy nation. We are destined to be the light in this world. We are to be the salt of this earth. We are to be a city that is set on a hill. Scripture also reminds us that our life is out of sync with our new identity. We are fallen, broken, prone to wander, we, as, we have, as Paul says, fallen short of the glory of God. We are holy and broken. We are broken, yet holy. We are broken and reassembled. We are imperfect clay pots. But Christ can and Christ must shine through us. In fact, as God reminded the apostle Paul, God often shines best through Paul's imperfections. God reminds us of the very same thing. He uses, his, he uses our imperfections so people can see his perfection. Our faith community here at Georgetown has a story that we need to be reminded of and that the world needs to hear over and over and over again as well. Telling it repeatedly reminds us of who we are. Because you see, our memory isn't all that great. The truth is that some of you will forget this message by the time you hit the gathering area, and most of you will have forgotten it by the time you get home. We are constantly being bombarded by the world that tells us a completely different story and invites us to follow a completely different path. Only a Christ-centered community has the truth that we and the world desperately need to hear. 
Second, we need to know who we must become, who we must be like. You see, we are called to become like Jesus. And Jesus is a high bar. Jesus has lots of expectations. And we need to accept that challenge. Everyone needs to be challenged to encourage and encouraged to engage in practices that will help shape and guide their own soul. From time alone with God to making ourselves accountable to fellow believers, to a small group, to a ministry team, or to leadership. That is, the church must encourage people to reflect that glory that is already theirs in Jesus Christ. These are not rules. These are not regulations, obligations. These are invitations. These are opportunities to live out our identity, to be who we are and are called to be. And Paul offers this word of encouragement. I myself feel confident about you, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge. You are able to instruct one another. Paul challenged the Christians in Rome to support and encourage their fellow believers, as does the author of Hebrews, when he reminds us to consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Think about who is encouraging you to do good deeds and to love. Can you name a mentor or two in your life? One that has spurred you on to good deeds. What good deeds are you doing now because they encouraged you? Who are you loving now and embracing now because they were there to support you? Think about that. And then think about who are you encouraging? You're a Christ follower. Who are you encouraging to be a Christ follower? Who are you mentoring? How are they loving now that they wouldn't be loving if it weren't for your influence? What good deeds are they doing as a result of your encouragement? Third, we are to hold each other accountable. We need to be willing to be held accountable as well. As a pastor, I am accountable to the elders of the church. They not only supervise my ministry, that is, decide whether I'm doing a good job or not doing such a good job. They are also to watch over my spiritual life to make sure that I continue to grow closer and closer to Jesus Christ. That I practice, if you will, what I preach. They're here also to supervise my personal life to make sure that I'm not doing anything that would detract from my witness to Jesus or diminish my witness of Christ's church. And when you, when you publicly professed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you promised to share faithfully in the life of this church, honoring and submitting to its authority. Accountability involves both encouragement and admonishment, both honoring one another and submitting to one another. We are to encourage one another, so we are to stay together and remain energized for the battle that awaits us. 
Luke tells us that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. They said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. You see, encouragement is the practice of keeping others passionate, of keeping others emboldened, of keeping others focused on the mission. And while life constantly beats us up and the world continually tears us down, we need a steady dose of mutual encouragement for one another. Allie ran yesterday. It's hard to run. It's hard to live the life of a Christian. It's easier, a bit easier, when you run with some others. It's even a bit easier when there are people along the, along the road or people in the stands that are cheering you on. We need that in life. Admonishment is the practice of offering necessary guidance for course correction. Go this way, not that way. Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Holding someone accountable, that is not an easy job. It requires significant wisdom, discernment, and most of all, a lot of grace. Paul said, we urge you to admonish the idlers, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with all of them. Admonishment, let's get to the bottom line. Admonishment is only well-received in a community that is united in love and united in trust and united in grace and willing to forgive. The first question is, do you love them enough to say to them what needs to be said? Do you love them enough? The second question is, do I believe they love me enough that I'm willing to listen to what they say I need to hear? And then fourth, we need to learn to walk together. Unity is the foundational marker that God's guidance and direction have been discerned. But unity should not be confused with unanimity. Unity is the conviction that the Spirit of God is leading us and leading us together into God's preferred future. Unity provides a vital witness, not only to one another, but to the world in which we live. Because our world is so focused on individual rights and having it their way. Three things that I've learned from experience. First, People tend to rise to the level of the expectation. That is, people generally step into what's expected of them if they know what that is. Increasingly, high-expectation churches are the ones that are growing. Or as Jesus said, we have not because we ask not. Second, people intuitively understand that when things are easy... <laughs> There's little chance that anything of real substance is going to come from them. We intuitively know that we get what we pay for. We intuitively know that we get out of something what we put into something. And third, while not everyone in the church is ready to commit to transformation, many are. 
And they too need to be challenged to grow in Christ, to use their spiritual gifts and to make a difference. Or sadly, they'll leave. As we've said, many churches are simply focused on getting people to come to church to fill the seats so it looks good. But the irony is, is that empty seats are often very helpful in the growth of a church because empty seats give us a little sense of a holy discontent. This is not the way it should be. And statistics indicate that once a church becomes about 80% occupied and filled, the church stops growing. Members get comfortable. They stop inviting people. The church begins to stagnate. And the problem is, while a church is focused on searching for more disciples and more members, they often overlook the hunger for a deeper life in Christ and being able to make better disciples. Dallas Willard believes that only about 10% of church members are ready to commit to discipleship. That's discouragingly low. He laments that the church puts too much emphasis on trying to light a fire under the 90% and as a result ignores those who want to be transformed and are willing to be disciples. Willard recommends that churches focus on those who are ready to become disciples. Those who are, if you will, in that 10%. He suggests that if they are able to grow spiritually, their spiritual growth will impact the spiritual growth of the other 90% in the congregation. And then Willard goes on to say that, that this was Jesus' method. He says Jesus' method was not primarily focused on the crowd, on the 90%, if you will, but on his small band of disciples, the proverbial 10%. And Willard states that this is the method that has been used by every single great leader throughout all of history. So now maybe you're wondering if, if you're in that 10%. Or perhaps you're wondering if you even want to be. I pray you are. Or I pray you soon will be. And the next series we'll start next week will invite us to some of those additional steps. But it's my prayer that the percentage will grow way beyond what Dallas Willard's expectations are for a given congregation. But it is true, and Willard was right to a certain extent. And again, although I'm not willing to give up on the 90%, most churches seldom ask enough of their members. As a result, a few, that is, those who have a hard time saying no to stuff, end up being the ones that are most invested. It's the classic 2080 rule, if you will. But the biblical mandate is that everyone is involved, that everyone is becoming a disciple, that everyone is on that path, all believers, all members. Everyone's invested in the work of the church together, and therefore we raise the discipleship bar of a faith community to 100%. Each church needs to decide what kind of faith community they, they are going to be. And within that, each member needs to decide what kind of a follower they're going to be. One that takes Jesus and his mission seriously in all of their life and is actively pursuing spiritual transformation in their own lives and 
for the lives of others or people that are just simply comfortable and content to experience the warmth and the fuzzies. The truth is, even if only 10% of church attenders were fully devoted followers of Jesus, if only 10% were, we could still change the world. Jesus' disciples did it. So it's been done. Brandon Hatmaker tells the story of his church in a great little book. Hatmaker was the lead pastor in a mega church in Austin, Texas. They had a multi-million dollar budget. They had a very large facility. They had a very gifted staff. They had a legion of programs. But he was burning out when he heard God tap him on the shoulder and say to him, I want you to resign and discover what I'm doing in my kingdom. And so he did. So after six morning worship services on Easter, Brandon and his wife, Jen, finished the day by attending a very small church in downtown Austin. He says the worship wasn't even all that well done, but it touched his soul. And then a guy by the name of Shane Clyburn got up. Shane shared his work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, his work in the slums of Philadelphia, and that he had preached that morning in a small church in San Antonio, a church that was ministering to a significant homeless population. In preparing to preach there, he said he had discovered that the greatest needs in that community were for good shoes and good boots. It was Texas. Most people who donated shoes and boots donated cheap ones or very old ones because good boots, good boots easily run several hundred dollars. And then Shane said, we're doing something different for communion tonight. If God is leading you, take off your shoes. And as you come forward to communion, Place your shoes or your boots on the altar and I will take them to the homeless in San Antonio tomorrow. Hatmaker's first thought was, why? Why did I wear my brand new, very expensive boots that my wife just gave me for Christmas tonight? But row after row came forward and placed their Sunday best shoes and boots on the altar and then moments later, after worship and communion, the entire church walked out onto the streets of Austin barefoot. Some years later, Hatmaker wrote a little book. It's titled Barefoot Church. It's about his church plant in North Austin. You see, they're not nearly as interested in building a church as much as in being the church and impacting the world for Jesus. So the question is, are we willing to walk wherever, however, shoed or barefoot, go wherever God asks us to go. God is calling us to be his church.
The time to break pots is behind us. It's time to put them back together. And if you're ready, if you're in, let's go. Let's pray together. Father, we long to be a part of a faith community that seeks you with all their heart. Part of a faith community that follows where you go, whether we got shoes or boots or nothing on. To be part of a community that cares for one another so deeply, the world notices. Transform us. Bless us. That we may be a people united, transforming and blessing your world. Father, may we know and experience your spirit and follow him into your will. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.